All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity. Over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, Bear Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today as our special guest, we have Colonel Jonathan Brazy. Yay! Right. So um, if there are ever any interruptions, uh, I will warn you, there, now we have two Marines on the podcast, uh, uh, Jonathan and um, Chris. So, you know, crowns, I, I tried to get them to put them away, but crowns, we have crowns. You yeah, leave me alone. That's how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. They've been giving me a, a ration on how I pronounce crowns, like Crayola crowns. <laughs> crowns. <laughs> you hush. You watch your pie hole. All right. So, so uh, Colonel Jonathan Brazzi is a retired Marine infantry colonel. Ura, uh, turned full-time rider living – is that how you say it? In the Army, we say it a little different. So I'm trying to be inclusive. Uh, no, we go, Ura. Close enough. Close enough. So uh, he's living in um, Las Vegas, Nevada with his wife, Kiwi, three cats, and soon-to-be identical twins. He's going to be busy in the near future. Oh yeah. So he published his his first work back in 1978, a so-called uh, so-so short story called Secession, which is available, by the way, on Amazon if you want to give out his early writing. Um, since then, he's been published in many venues, newspapers, magazines, and books. He's written about many nonfiction topics over the years, political science, business, military sports, race relations, and personal relations fields. He turned to writing fiction in 2009 and has over 65 titles published, 42 of them being novels. His novelette, weaponized math which has the coolest title ever yeah um was a was a finalist for the 2017 nebula award and integration was a finalist for the 2018 dragon award for best military science fiction fantasy novel so i have to ask before we move on weaponized math was that your idea for a title no i wish it really was uh i was reading uh an article about the marine corps sniper school and one of the instructors said that Sniping is basically weaponized math. And I said, that is a great title. Yeah, absolutely. That was great. I, that title alone was was why I bought the anthology it was in. <laughs> so uh, Jonathan's undergraduate degree was earned at the U.S. Naval Academy. He's a class of 1979. Uh, and he's aged well. And he's attended graduate school at the U.S. International University and the University of California, San Diego, where he earned a master's degree and a doctorate. Uh, so as an aside, do we call you Colonel Doctor or Dr. Colonel? 
Just call me anything but late for dinner. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, that's the grunts. We think with our bellies. Uh, so anyway, back to the introduction. Cur- Colonel Dr. Brazi is a lifetime member of the DAV, Disabled American Veterans, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the VFW, and the U.S. Naval Academy Alumni Association. And then finally, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Wait, CIFWA. Wait a minute. Isn't CIFWA the um, – is it still America? Or did they retitle? It still is. That's, that's under discussion. Uh, since some of the other ones, like the horror writers and uh, RWA, have gone to association. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they had yet. Is that just going to make them worldwide? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. We, there are uh, something like fifteen uh, percent of the members are international, and others don't want to join because it says America, hmm. or they don't even think they qualify or whatever. Ah, uh, yeah, the, okay, uh, the world, yeah. the world economy has become global, so it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Even so. in that's right. He has rather eclectic taste. He's won awards in photography, cooking, writing, and several sports, earned national championships in rugby and equestrian events. And when he's not riding, he's reading, cooking, going to the gym, or traveling. He attends quite a few cons over the course of a year and loves meeting other people who love books. Cue the Legion of Creepy Stalkers. <laughs> love the stalkers. <laughs> so I have to ask, what position in rugby did you play? Uh, well, <clears throat> for the championship, I was a scrum half, but I was a Wing forward more often, and then if there were extra games, I'd fit in almost anywhere. Uh, I wasn't a very good front row, although, and I played hooker once, but that's a crazy position. Yes, it is. I uh, I was uh, a, a forward when I played in college. Oh so. yeah, that's, that's a great position, especially when you're not so uh, skinny. <laughs> <laughs> I. I, I I played briefly for the Army as a fill-in, and uh, we got to play the Marines at Camp Lejeune, and I have to say they cheated. Well, I, I've technically in rugby, it's not cheating if the sir doesn't see it, but but they cheated, I, which, I got, which mostly I, means we lost. <laughs> I got my knees when a, uh, a dependent, uh, a Samoan dependent from Fort Bragg, I was, uh, I was kind of embarrassing him, and he came over and nailed me over my shoulder, knocked me to my knees with a minute left in, in the match. And they canceled the match. We won, but they, you know, they stopped the match. And the the captain was a Samoan chief, actually. Uh, he was a sergeant first class, and he made the kid come up and apologize. But I've never been hit so hard in my life. Wow, wow! So the uh, the hardest I was actually hit was when we were playing uh, the University of Maryland. And ironically, the uh, the guy that hit me, he was uh, one of the Mesops uh, going to U, uh, U of M. And, uh, and so he had been a, an infantry, uh, a light infantry guy. And so when I deployed to Iraq, the, the company that we did our right seat ride with that certified us as good to go on our own, he was their LT. So my first mission in Iraq, it was him. So <laughs> he, I, I broke his nose during the match and he dislocated my shoulder. And all of a sudden I look at him and he just starts rubbing his shoulder, smiling at me. He recognized me. <laughs> So what a great sport, though. You got to it. It is. It's, it's something beautiful about it because no matter you know where you are, you find someone that played and you've got instant friends, you know? And no matter how hard you hit each other on the pitch, you party afterwards together. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember we had a field inspection one day when I was playing uh, briefly for the Bragg team and we were all sober because of that for the match. I think that's probably the worst we ever played and they couldn't figure it out. But I knew it's because you're not meant to play that, that sport sober. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway, moving back to the interview, no one wants to hear us drone on about rugby. But uh, so this is the part of the introduction where we say how we found them. So I actually uh, found Jonathan through the great and mighty oracle of all things righteous and holy, the mighty Bezos of the Zon tribe. You might have heard of him. Um, For a long time, our author pages linked to each other's in the if you like Bob, you'll also love Jim section on the author profile. Um, his pro, his bio said he was a veteran, so I stalked him for a while, as one does. Uh, I was interested in meeting other veterans who'd traded in their guns for pens. Well, metaphorical pens anyway, because we all like to shoot still. Um, and then we started chatting in some of the various author groups. I watched his Keystroke Medium interview, and we finally met in Vegas, which is we, uh, we attended a professional writing conference there. Um, I'll link that interview on the KSM, on the Keystroke Medium in the show notes if you want to check it out. And the rest is history. What about you, Chris? Well, I wouldn't say that Jonathan and I are old, but I will say that we we went all the way back to the beginning. Beginning of what? The only thing that was important. You see, we were the guys spiking the punch bowl at the party. We got everybody good and drunk and told them, just sign here if you like this party. Sign here if you don't. Of course, with all the booze flowing, everyone thought it was a good idea. We snapped the book closed and told everybody they just enlisted. (laughs) Now we're hoping we can do the same thing with Space Force. Yeah, but uh, did you tell them where they signed that that party at? That was Tun Tavern. <laughs> I'll say Tun Tavern got to be. <laughs> <laughs> he was. I told you he was old people. He was there from the beginning. That's right. <laughs> so well, is I it? Was, uh, I was there the second day. Because <laughs> Chris was older. <laughs> name. I understand. Right. I understand. Now is the uniform is the uniform more comfortable now that you don't have the leather stocks at your neck? No, I kind of like those. It makes me feel. Uh, it makes me feel more secure. Yeah, yeah. Correct okay. your posture and uh, keep you from slouching. Sneak up with a saber slash. That's right. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Somehow I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> of course. All right. So the religion question, Jonathan: Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? And I have my mouse over the kick button. I have to say, I'm multi-denominational. Oh, <laughs> it's not kicking. I'm, I'm able to speak different religions with whoever's there. Oh. I, I, will say, I will say this. Uh, I was a Star Trek fan in the first season that it came out, mostly because my brother was a fan. And I was very I, I was very sad that I couldn't go with him down to New York to protest after the second season when it was initially canceled. But he went down there and did the protest in New York that second season and helped bring it back. I didn't know that happened. Yeah, yeah, it got canceled. I wonder why they they, announced it was canceled. I wonder why they didn't do the same thing with Firefly. They should. Well, that's a good question. You have to remember back then we only had four channels, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. And PBS, and we didn't get very well. So you you had a lot fewer things to look at, and people got more – involved in the star trek was just so different oh. i mean it was completely i mean you had gilgan's island bewitched and star trek there's nothing like it yeah wow i i'd never considered that before so was uh was star trek your first introduction to sci-fi um actually no 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 my first introduction was uh I, you know i had i had been reading i had read uh, uh don quixote de la mancha and Hardy Boys were the two things I was reading. Oh, yeah. And my brother gave me Starman's Son, which was now it's called Daybreak uh, 2250 AD. But the initial the initial title was simply Starman's Son. And I was gobsmacked 
I mean, I'm, I'm reading it and I, it's like, you can make up your own universe. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, you know, it, depended, it was kind of a dystopian uh, a novel. It was by Andre Norton. And I was just totally amazed that you could write something that isn't based on going down the local street or whatever, you know, Hardy Boys or whatever. Right. So I so that was my introduction. So I looked it up real quick while you were answering that question. A quick Google search says there actually was a protest campaign trying to get them to turn it around, which is saying something because when um, when Fox first aired Firefly, they aired them out of order, never at the same time on the same day. So it was sort of doomed from the start. But but apparently there was letter writing campaigns. It just wasn't enough. Ah, uh, okay. That's pathetic. I remember my brother, <laughs> my brother getting on a bus to go to New York to protest. See, that's what they should have done. Apparently. Apparently, yeah. So, what do you love about science fiction as a genre? I, I, I part of it is just my love of of thinking of what will happen in the future. But what I like about it is that you can set the parameters. As a writer, uh, you're not constrained by uh, by the current day reality. You can put in, uh, you can substitute aliens for. People exploring, going, you know, Marco Polo going to China, or or uh, uh, the the people from the islands going to Hawaii, things like that. When you do that, you're still dealing with with human beings. Cultures may be different, something like that. Well, with science fiction, now you can put in aliens, and you can really examine the human condition better as a reflection from what you're seeing. Um, you can basically create any sort of environment or situation that allows you to explore whatever focus you want in your book or your short story, whatever. As a reader, and remember, you know, I was a, re- I still am a reader. Uh, I've got probably 6,000 books sitting here in the shelves uh, in my office right now. Uh, they, it allows you to escape and contemplate what can happen. And in many cases, I mean, if you look right now, the U.S. military has brought in both the Army and the Marine Corps have brought in science fiction writers to help them map out the future of military operations from now to the year 2050. That's been happening both by the Army and the Marine Corps just recently. And so science fiction helps you map out the future and even gameplay it, so to speak, gameplay things that will work and not work. So that, right, tap into the imagination of a lot of different people. So the um, mm-hmm. they actually have done some um, think tanks where they've invited science fiction authors to um, to DC and to Quantico specifically, where they talked about it. But another thing they did is they actually paired up science fiction writers with actual combat veterans. The Marine Corps did specifically, and they released it as an anthology. And they had them like war game out the strategies and then turn it into like story form. Um, and that yeah, yeah, you can actually did. buy that and read those stories. Yeah, that was in 2006, 15 or 16, uh, they did that. And it was really fascinating. And the Army has uh, has a, a annual military science fiction writing contest uh, that they ask soldiers to write stories to help map out how combat may be going over the next 30, 40 years. And if I can find those links, I, I will look for them. I will pop them in the show notes, people. So how did your love of science fiction transition into you writing novels in it? Well, like a, like a lot of storytellers, I believe people want to hear what I have to say. 
You know, it's the hubris of being a writer. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and, uh, since I, I initially, well, I wrote my, my first science fiction, my first story that I got published was actually a science fiction story. It was The Secession. Not that great, but it was published back in 1978. And then as a, as a Marine, I was writing nonfiction, uh, more to do with my job, uh, political science, um, cross-cultural management, things like that, um, nuclear proliferation, uh, because there was more related to what I was doing. But I kept reading science fiction. When I was in Iraq, and you don't really have a lot of – I don't want to say downtime. You do have some downtime, but not a whole lot of entertainment time, shall I say. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of books because I didn't have a Kindle, and so I was reading whatever somebody had left. Um, I decided I was going to write my novel, and you're supposed to write what you know. So I wrote about the Marine Corps security guard uh, at the embassy in New Delhi. And it was just just to write something. I just wanted to have a novel that I could – give to my family and friends. I had no intention of, of actually putting it out to be published. Um, and then when my military fiction started catching on in 2012, and I realized that maybe there's a future in writing, I had to go back to my, you know, I, I, my, my first success was military fiction. I, I did write one science fiction, not military related, uh, um, that didn't sell that, you know, it sold okay but nothing like my military fiction, but my love is in science fiction. And I wanted to be able, if I wanted to expand my ability to write, I believe in writing realistic, realistically, and I could write about Marines infantry, but I couldn't really write as much about the army or the Navy or the air force or whatever. And so I thought, well, wait a minute. I, my love is in science fiction. I could create my own set of parameters I've got to go science fiction. And so that's when I wrote Recruit in 2014. And to my surprise, it really proved to be a very popular book. Well, hold on, Excellent. sir. Have you stayed in a five-star hotel? Yes. Then you could write about being in the Air Force. <laughs> Boom. Shot fired. <laughs> okay. Well, I got to take, I, I got to, I got to take the, I got to make a little uh, uh, side sidetrack here about the Air Force, you know, when I retired from the Marine Corps, I moved to Thailand to work for a, a Thai manufacturing company. When my books really started becoming more important and the job started becoming less interesting, I came back and I moved out. I just, I was smart enough to move outside an Air Force base because Air Force, of course, has the great gyms and, and the big exchanges and everything. And the best thing about the gym is, and I, and I tell the Air Force friends there all the time, the people I meet, is that all the heavier weights are like brand new. They're never used. <laughs> now, if you want the little, you know, lighter weights, okay, you might have to wait around for that. But the heavier weights, <laughs> the little pink ones never, in nylon. <laughs> condition. <laughs> so don't, don't, um, you know, don't, don't, don't talk the Air Force. I mean, that's great. All right. Wow. <laughs> and send the hate mail <laughs> to Chris at. <laughs> Uh, so who's been who's been the largest influence in your writing is there an author you try to emulate or outdo or or was it a life experience that that really forms your your words like my life experience by far uh the people who like my work seem to like the fact that they relate to it that it's real military they knew a lieutenant like that they had a corporal like that oh they did this they did that and so I believe 
the biggest influence on my writing has been my military experience. I mean, I do read other writers all the time and I see what works for them, uh, both from a more on a literary standpoint on how they create the book. But then I'm also looking at writers who have had uh, significant success and how they uh, talk to them and how they reached their, uh, their, their readership um, and things like that. But I think the single biggest thing is my military experience. Do you ever draw characters from people you've met, of course, changing names to protect the guilty? All the time. <laughs> yeah, so do I. <laughs> all, all the time. And I don't always change the names. <laughs> Uh, a lot of them, I talk to them. I have a, a, a general right now who is, he was my lieutenant actually. Uh, uh, his name is in a book and he loves it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, actually, he's a lieutenant colonel in the book. Uh, that's one of the straight military fiction. Uh, no, I, I mine my, my mind, the people who I've interacted with all the time. Nice. All right, so transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. What's the weirdest or funniest story about an interaction with a fan that you've had since you started writing? I've actually had quite a few, but one that comes to mind is that uh, I was in Helsinki at Worldcon, and I was in the green room with George Martin, uh, two other writers, and his HBO handler. And it was a really cool time, you know, 40 minutes talking with George Martin. You know, who wouldn't want to do that? Sure. And uh, he had to leave at the hour to go sign books. Uh, and there's, you know, they line up 2000 people lined up to, for, to have him sign a book. It, when I do it, I usually have three or four. <laughs> you're, hoping you're not next to him when that happens. Uh, but anyway, uh, his handler had to go to the restroom first. There's the HBO handler that travels with him. And so we're standing at the door of the green room out just outside waiting for her. And there's this big, 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 long passage leading up that ends on the green room, uh, a hallway. And I see a guy coming from the far end, and he's got a book in his hand. He's got a determined look on his face. And I'm just thinking, come on, guy, give him a break. Hmm. You know, let him go sit down. You get in line, wait your turn, and he'll sign the book for you. Just, Just be cool about this. But, you know, I didn't want to say that, so I stepped back to give him room to come up to George. It was my book, and he was coming for my autograph. <laughs> I, I, I looked over at George. He's looking at me, and I wanted to say, you know, don't worry, George. You know, you keep plugging away, and you're going to have people seek you out. Soon, but just, just <laughs> do it. And I, I am going to regret that till my dying day that I didn't say that to George. <laughs> That's awesome. That would have been fun. <laughs> That, oh. That's good. So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah. Chris would have probably said it. <laughs> I would have said it. He doesn't have much. What's of a worst culture. he can do? That was the worst thing about it. I fought to say it, but I didn't. So when we were when we were overseas that's right, next time, the, yeah, next time <laughs> when we were overseas, that was the running joke. <laughs> is what are they going to do? Bend our dog tags and send us to Iraq? Yeah, that was our- right. Well, we said shame. Shave our heads and send us to Yeah, that was, that was our, uh, you know, when we were about to do something stupid line. <laughs> anyway, I, I would think colonels didn't do as many stupid things as the sergeants and the uh, the specialists did. Oh, no, we did. 
<laughs> so, all right. So this is the part of the interview where I list out the various um, series that Jonathan has written. So <clears throat> let me get a drink of water. Uh, the list is long, people. I think this is the longest we've ever done. He just beat out uh, former Marine Craig Martell for the, uh, the most uh, on my list. But let's get started. <clears throat> the United States uh, United Federation Marine Corps Series, the United Federation Marine Corps Lysander Twins Series, Women of the United Federation Marine Series, the Semper Lycanus Series, the Return of the Marine Series, the United States uh, Marine Corps Grub Wars Trilogy, which actually should be United Federation Marine Corps. It's a mistake on Amazon's part. Well, we'll call Bezos and get that fixed for you. Um, hmm. Then we have the all Anbar Chronicles, First Marine Expeditionary Forces Iraq series, Marines from Now to the Future, a Jonathan Brazi Starter Library box set, the All Anbar Chronicles, for First Marine Expeditionary Forces Iraq box set, the Darwin's Quest, the Search for the Ultimate Survivor, it was a standalone novel. I actually have seen the cover for that one. Um, I got a signed copy of that when we were in Vegas. It actually looks pretty interesting, Chris. That might be up your alley. It's a, a lit RPG kind of thing. Um, Nice. So we have Behind Enemy Lines, a United Federation Marine Corps novel, which is a standalone novel in his United Federation Marine Corps universe. We have Where Rat, a standalone novel. The United Federation Marine Corps, the Rick Lysander Trilogy. Uh, Exercising for a Longer Life, a guide for men over 40, <coughs> Chris, uh, which is standalone. <laughs> uh, Semper Fidelis, a standalone novel. The Werewolf of Marines series. Um, we have the Seeds of War trilogy with Lawrence M. Shion. Okay. Um, we have the Battle of the Marine Corps series. The Battles of the Marine Corps. Is that a standalone or is that going to be a series? That is a historical fiction. The first book is um, to, uh, from the shores of Tripoli, which is about the uh, first Barbary War from 1802 to 1805, which was the funnest book I've written. Yeah. Uh, you and Richard Fox should get together and do your historical fiction because he's been talking about wanting to do the Red Baron forever. I might yeah, be your only yeah. reader, yeah. but I, I say you do it. Peer pressure and all. Um, so we have Rebel, the United Federation. Richard Fox, we were supposed to go watch the Army-Navy game together next week, but I'm going to be in the Philippines. All right. So uh, we're going to oh. win again, so it's okay. Spoiler. The years that happened before the winning streak don't count. So <laughs> uh, Rebel, the United Federation Marine Corps, which is a novel set in the United uh, Federation. I keep wanting to say United States, but the United Federation Marine Corps, the Expanding Universe Anthology, Volume 4, uh, Bob's Bar. That's the one where your weaponized math was in, correct? No, no. The Expanding Universe, Volume 3, was weaponized math. Bob's Bar is the book with um, well, Richard Fox, Michael Anderley, Craig Martell, a bunch of people who uh, where our main characters meet in a multi multi-dimensional bar. Oh, that's and right. Bob will be out next week. Okay, so you were in volume three and four. I, I missed that somehow. I was in three and four. Uh, Bob's Bar Two made it actually up to number eighty-two, I think, on Amazon. Wow. All right. So we have uh, – so the Expanding Universe Volume 3 and 4, I was in the third one. Um, it's uh, Craig uh, Martell does a, a good thing with those. They're, they're fun. Then you had the Bob's Bar, Tale from the Multiverse series, Bob's Bar 2, uh, the Navy of Humankind Wasp Squadron series. Is that a play on the Wasps or the Mosquito Fleet concept? 
No, 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 I just pulled that on my butt. That works. <laughs> so agents of the Confederation series, weaponized math, a staff sergeant, Gracie Medicine Crow, United Federation Marine Corps novelette with the awesomest title ever. Um, Ghost Marine series, animal soldiers, Hannibal is a standalone novel. Coda, a United Federation Marine Corps short story. Uh, High value target, a staff sergeant, Gracie Medicine Crow, United Federation Marine Corps short story. The Bolo Mission, a Staff Sergeant Gracie Medicine Crow, United Federation Marine Corps short story. Does she ever get promoted? Uh, yeah, I just pulled I, – I hadn't written in the novel about her as a Staff Sergeant, so that gave me a couple years to make new missions for her. She's She is the sniper in Weaponized Math. Oh, okay, okay. I've read Weaponized Math. I didn't, I didn't put the connection. Um, I was too busy drooling over the awesome title and wishing I thought of it first. <laughs> so we have, yeah. So we have duty, a short story, Venus, a paleolithic short story, secession, a short story, his first one ever published in 1978, as we've previously mentioned. And then we have, um, I have as a note, he's also been translated into several languages. Uh, I found German, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Africanus, and several more, um, Chinese, Chinese. Well, there you go. Okay. And, and I had to Google. I didn't didn't realize Afrikaans was actually a language. I don't know why. I thought they just spoke Dutch down there for some reason. Uh, no, it's it's different from Dutch, but it's it's uh, based on Dutch. All right. So normally we would have gotten into the first question about why he, what book we're picking, but uh, the list was so long that we have to pause for a commercial interlude. So uh, stick with us for a second. Hey listeners, Josh Hayes here, co-host of Keystroke Medium. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Sci-Fi Shenanigans. I tell you, we're really excited about what JR and Chris are doing with the podcast and are proud to feature them as part of our podcast partner network. When you get done listening to this episode, I'd like to invite you to come check out our own podcast at keystrokemedium.com. You can find all our previous episodes and check out all the amazing authors we've had on the show. If you're free on Mondays, mark your calendars for 11 a.m. Come hang out with us as we talk to today's leading science fiction and fantasy authors and other industry professionals. We've got a great live audience who get into a lot of shenanigans of their own, as JR and Chris can attest. That's every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, live on Keystroke Media. We're going to talk about some reading we're going to talk about some writing and of course everything in between and now i'll let you get back to some more shenanigans with jr and chris have a great day all right thank you for sticking with us through the commercial interlude i told you he had a long list so we are still interviewing colonel jonathan brazy so thank you for sticking with us and uh, while that entire list you just listened to before the commercial um, was amazing uh, today we're going to focus on his united federation marine corps series specifically book one recruit i picked this series because it's the first one in a universe he's played around in a lot um, i'm talking about series upon series in this world so how did you come up with the idea or the premise for the series where did the spark of inspiration come from you know, I, I don't want to say it was a spark. It was more of a slow burn. Um, you know, I was writing military fiction and, and having, you know, a fairly decent degree of success in it. But my love was in science fiction. And I wanted to move into that market. And I'm trying to think of what can I do and how do I, how should I start it? And I had this idea of this universe. And I had five books sort of planned out and what I wanted it to do. I wanted it to be realistic I didn't want it to be comic booky. Um, I didn't want it to be really space opery. I wanted it to show what the what a military might be with, and not just the military. Of course, you had to have the political situation and everything like that. So it was just sort of a slow burn, and I decided, well, what the heck, you know, uh, you know, Robert Heinlein started as a recruit, and you know, Scalzi had a recruit, so 
Let's just start with right in the beginning. Let's just start them in the beginning and move them on up the ranks. Although I didn't plan on hitting all the ranks, <laughs> uh, but that was that was the basis. So it's kind of so it was kind of more of a slow burn uh, that was building up for a long time before I took the plunge. Because um, quite frankly, I had no idea whether it would be whether it'd be accepted or not, you know, it's all my hero, all my writing heroes were science fiction and all that kind of stuff. So there's a little bit of the imposter syndrome going on, but sure. I wanted to give it a shot. And, and at this point, writing was my hobby. I mean, it was nice to get a little royalty check every month, but this was not my job. This was just a fun hobby. Okay. So the, uh, Jonathan Scalzi, who was the other one that had a book title recruit? Oh, no, no, not the name recruit. They started off with the recruits, uh, uh, Robert Heinlein. Ah, okay. Oh, uh, you know, uh, both books uh, both books basically started off with, with uh, boot camp. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I, yep. So, all right, so the premise for recruit mentions pirates. So can we expect swashbuckling and plank walking? Nope, not at all. <laughs> as I as – I, as I said a little bit ago, I like realism. I like things that are, are logical progression. I mean, you have to have a suspension of disbelief to do science fiction, you know, just faster than light travel or whatever. Um, but I want everything to work within a set parameters. I want my military to be real. So my pirates are more like technically advanced Somali pirates. Uh, and the Marine Corps is doing – guarding the uh well the marine corps and the navy uh, are guarding uh, commerce and people from uh these pirates so no planks and they're just basically bad guys criminals i like the plank walking you've ruined my dreams <laughs> sir all right all right all right we'll move on we'll move on all right so i think i think futuristic plank walking is when you space people at an airlock yep does any of that happen Actually, yes, it does happen. Perfect. I will take There you go. Thank you, Chris. Now you can quit whining. Walk, okay. <laughs> no arg. Well, that's just because they had poor <laughs> dental care. They just had sore teeth. So uh, <laughs> judging by the titles of this series, it's organized, as you mentioned, along a career progression of the main character, similar to Horatio Hornblower's or the Sharps Rifle series, uh, a trend which I see uh, followed in many science fiction books. So – that was intentional. You thought from the beginning you were going to do that, or did it just sort of naturally happen because that's what you were reading? It, it both sort of. I, I kind of thought I wanted uh, five books, and I was going to skip a lot of ranks, like like major. What exciting happens to a major? PowerPoint. You know, we we, we say the two most <laughs> the two most bastard or useless ranks in the Marine Corps both wear gold. You know, second lieutenant and major. <laughs> and there's a lot of a horrible rank. And so I wasn't going to write about a major and I wasn't going to write about a lieutenant colonel because as a battalion commander, you're not there kicking down doors and taking names, which is what makes space Marines exciting. Um, and I had a couple of, you know, there was just, it was going to be more limited, but people kept writing me saying, well, wait a minute. I was a battalion commander in Vietnam. You got to put a battalion commander in there. And oh, no, no, we need to see this rank. We need to see captain. We need to see major. So it sort of is a, was in response to my readers that it became as complete. However, my big regret is I promoted Rick to 
lieutenant after he was a sergeant. I should have written about the best damn rank in the Marine Corps, which was gunnery sergeant. I will regret that forever. Ah. You could demote him and then promote him again, I suppose. <laughs> That's right. He's going to get busted down from Commandant. It could happen. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. I don't know. It's, it's, it it's your universe. You could do whatever. I remember um, I was uh, – my first book, you know, just as, as a side, one of the things they, they – the five-star review – or excuse me, a four-star review put though was that I got it wrong because Marines don't say – I think I put – I used huzzah because I just wanted to be different, you know, than what we use. You said Marines say oorah and I'm like, well – but space marines do, so that's my get out of jail free card. Whenever, whenever someone says that's not how the what fill in the blank does it, you put space in front of it, and you could do whatever you want. Well, I think it was Marco Cluse wrote. I think it was one of the books I read of his. A good book. I mean, he's a great writer. Uh, but one of the reviewers, oh, not more than one, not not one, more than one, took him to task because he had enlisted. The enlisted marines all had enlisted marine ranks. The officers all had Navy ranks, and he was told, you cannot do that. Well, this is 2,000 years in the future. I mean, when you look, the rank gunnery sergeant, for example, didn't exist until 1958. So, But no, he got taken to task for doing that, and I kind of learned a lesson from that. You, One of the requirements of uh, military sci-fi is to keep it in today's terminology. He's a veteran too, but uh, Marco Kluge served yeah. in the uh, German army German before army. he immigrated to the U.S. So I, yep. I met him at uh, the last Honor Con. Um, I think that was in Raleigh or somewhere in North Carolina, I think. But uh, he's a very friendly guy. He's very approachable. He, well, he's a great guy. In fact, I, I just went to the the son of Honor Con. I was a guest of honor. Well, I was a, excuse me, a distinguished guest or whatever they call it. Uh, for SphinxCon okay. in Atlanta, David Weber, he did his. Um, they, re- they renewed their vows all in in honor honor verse uniforms. It's pretty cool. Okay, so the um, the funny thing about um, um, Marco, which I thought you'd get a kick out of, he got into a heated debate, argument, whatever you want to call it, with one of the fans over the proper way to stack a hamburger, whether you put the cheese on the bottom or the top. I, I, I didn't even know this was wow. a thing. But apparently there was a, like this uh, – they were going for an hour when I finally said I was going to bed. <laughs> and they weren't even drunk. No excuses. So no excuses all right. So uh, many of your reviewers compared the story to the Forever War by Halderman. So was this intentional? No. Um, it's an honor to have read that. But I would never have even considered being compared to Joe Halderman. Um, I – had him and still have him up on a uh, pedestal. It was my great honor to moderate him in a panel at um, Worldcon. Uh, no, I I put the Forever War as one of the best, not just military science fiction, but one of the best science fiction books of all time. So I I didn't. I've got hubris. I, I've got an ego. I'll, I'll admit <laughs> it. But my ego isn't that strong to compare myself with Joe. Okay, so um, this story also had similar vibes to Michael G. Thomas's Star Legion series and Jay Allen's Crimson World series. There are other indie authors as um, as well. So, were you aware of their series when you started writing your own universe? Jay Allen, yes. Uh, I, I did not at that time. I didn't know Michael G. Thomas, or I, I've never actually. I know Jay, 
I've never met Michael, but I, I had not known of his work at that time. Hmm. Okay. So since Jared went building up on the comparisons when prepping for this interview, let's try it again. Uh, I noticed strong themes revolving around the brotherhood of arms, honor, and integrity. These are obviously important to service members, but what do you think it is that resonates so much with civilians or non-combat veterans, especially in today's age? The short answer is it, it does not resonate, in my opinion, it does not resonate as well with civilians because there is a part of being in the military, uh, the very strong part of being in the military is the brotherhood that's forged, you know, the uh, brothers in arms, you know, there's a brotherhood that forged there that you can get a feel maybe for some sports teams or something, but when there's life and death on it, it forges something that just can't be replicated. However, you can still, if you have, even if you have never served, you can, it can still resonate, just maybe not to the in-depth degree, just like you know, I could read a book about uh, detectives. I could read a book about doctors and it can resonate with me, but I may not get the same depth, the same uh, intensity as someone who was a detective or worked on the police force. I mean, I, I love reading police, you know, books about police, uh, you know, all the detective thrillers and stuff. I was never, I was never an MP. I was never a policeman. I could still enjoy it. I could resonate it. I could feel it. I could understand what the author is trying to say. But someone who who pounded the pavement with the LAPD might get it a little bit more. But that this discipline, the honor, all those themes, I think are, are in my opinion, this is what makes military sci-fi more than the action, more than the universe you've created. And particularly with space marines, even more so than maybe space fleet, you have to have that in order to fit the genre, subgenre. Which is, by the way, military sci-fi is the largest subgenre within within sci-fi. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, because it's popular. <laughs> yep. So, so recruit is clearly part of a series. I know because it says so in the title. Uh, there are currently eight books in this series. So are you expecting to write more? If so, where do you see it going? What's next? Um, I basically stopped in this universe after 24 books because my universe constrained me. I created a universe that had this kind of enemy, um, this kind of situation, and I was able to explore that kind of conflict, but it, I couldn't change my universe to explore new avenues. Uh, so I switched and I did my integration, my Ghost Marines, for example, which I've been very proud of. That was a book that was uh, up for the Dragon Award. Um, so I, I didn't plan on writing more, but within the universe, I mean, the Lysander twins, those are the two, those are the, do- the son and the daughter of Rick Lysander, who is the protagonist of the first series. Um, uh, Agent of the Confederation is a is a uh, secondary character who's important a secondary character from not the <clears throat> united federation but the the confederation uh, the confederation of free states and so i've been pulling in he had his he got his own book it may be a series it's planned as a series um but basically after 20 was it 23 or 24 novels and uh, you know novelettes and novellas I've moved on to other universes. Okay, so instead of jumping the shark, you this universe is pretty much put to bed. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say it's absolutely put to bed. But yeah, I didn't want to jump the shark. I didn't want to go a, a different direction. And I wanted to explore um, different, not just situations. I wanted to explore different universes, I guess. I wanted to have a, a book about a Navy fighter pilot. Uh, and that really didn't fit so well in the United Federation Marine Corps. That works. That's that works. Instead of ruining it, uh, let it let it end on a good note. And who knows? Maybe uh, maybe we'll get a couple more in this universe. A couple yeah, standalones, maybe. Yeah. I, I would. I love the universe. Obviously, it's been my life for since 2014. Yeah. So you know, something could happen again. Okay. So we we all know that every literary universe has its own internally consistent technology and rules of science. So for the reader who hasn't joined the universe yet, what kind of tech could we expect from your universe? Like faster than light, ray guns, teleporters? Well, I I think you have to have FTL, faster than light, if you're doing uh, anything beyond the next hundred years in science fiction. Um, We have to have a way to get to other planets, whether that's a gate or faster than light. I think you just have to have it. And my faster than light, I don't try to explain it. It just is there. Uh, for the for the United Federation Marine Corps, it's called bubble space. And just like you may not know all the ways that your car runs, people just take it for granted. <laughs> yeah, um, they do. <laughs> I, I go a little bit more in detail with weapons. Um, not as a uh, uh, as a gun geek, um, you know. Uh, going into every, you know, doing three or four pages of how the sidearm works. Um, but unrealistically, I mean, when you're using uh, uh, energy weapons, be that a particle beam or whatever, uh, you have a big problem with heat buildup. So if you, and, and if you're on the planet with Marines, you've got dissipation and, uh, and ablation. And so you have to take yep. consideration, you're going to take power. I have no God weapons that can just shoot forever. Uh, the bigger the weapon, the more power it takes. There's going to have to be a, a, a recharge time maybe. In space, it's very difficult to get rid of heat um, because the vacuum of space, that's why a vacuum bottle works. <laughs> vacuum oh. doesn't turn So I try to look at all that. And I, I, I've done some things that are very simple, like the mother of all bombs that we had, the mob in, in yeah. Iraq. I have a mother of all bombs that's dropped from a, uh, that's dropped from a, orbit and i actually created one and then i gave it i sent it to my roommate from the naval academy who's a physicist and i said hey just give me a look on this he said well that would have probably cracked the planet open so i had to downsize my my beautiful icicle uh, or drop (laughs) i called it i guess um but generally speaking i'm not that technical as as some hard science fiction uh stuff works uh, I explain what it matters to the user, how many rounds you have, how much you have to carry that uh, power packs. Sure, uh, the limitations. Yeah, uh, my 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 combat suits. Uh, you have cooling packs because combat. You're inside a combat suit. How do you get rid of the heat? Um, and if you don't, and if, if those if those somehow fail you, you're going to overheat and get heat exhaustion or heat stroke. And I've got that in my books. So my technology is generally related to how it affects the protagonists or the enemy or whatever. Um, 
I, I did get into a little bit of detail on some of my genetics because I've, when I was in Thailand, I didn't watch, you didn't get a lot of TV, but you got all the discovery and history channel and stuff. So I'd read some really cool thing about biology and I'd, I'd have to go in the book. Um, <laughs> nice. And I would, uh, I went into instant, uh, instantaneous communication with quantum physics, uh, how that might work. So I do a little bit of it, but not as much as some other writers. Yeah. Quantum physics is awesome because even they don't know how it works. <laughs> so whatever I said, I, I bounced it off a few people and they said, well, possibly. Said, yeah, okay, we're there. <laughs> yeah. JR and I call that hand wavium. It's, yeah, it's, hand a, wavium, it's yeah. a rare element that where you wave your hands and it works. Hand yeah, I actually graduated from uh, hand wavium <laughs> university. I'm, I'm a distinguished alumni. <laughs> so um, this book is set within the larger immersive universe. Um, the recruit is the of the United Federation Marine Corps universe. So, do you think you'll follow the trend of inviting other authors to play in your sandbox? Um, I would, I would definitely welcome it. I guess I, I did try it uh, with one person, and let's just say it was a horrendous failure. I couldn't, I couldn't put that out. Um, ah, yeah. You have to be able. Oh, for example, in this book, uh, he had a private, basically leading an operation, telling the majors what to do, and they're yes siring. And I <laughs> just said no. <laughs> and it wasn't even enough that I could fix. <laughs> and, and wow bummer example and it just went on from there but if if somebody actually had some writing chops oh yeah i, I would welcome it i don't know there's there's times when situationally you might be in charge of people that technically outrank you but but i can't imagine a private being that person <laughs> no especially with private who this was his second operation um there's no background, but now, you know, the major actually called him sir. Wow. So like when I, when I escorted convoys in Iraq as a security commander, if the, uh, the, the convoy commander, you know, crapped themselves and didn't do their job, I could in theory take over when it hit the fan as a security commander. Oh, sure. uh, even if I, like, no problem the problem with that. with that is, is even if you're justified in doing it, you have to live with them afterwards and they never forget. So that's, uh, you know, so that's <laughs> one of those things that, but even when it happens, like I, there was times when I had to because you know the LT got distracted or whatever. Um, but but it's like that. Even when it happens, it doesn't happen lightly, you know. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> all right. So does your universe have aliens in it? And if so, how do you go about creating them? Do you let nature inspire you, or do you create them out of whole cloth? Um, I've gone both ways. Uh, my clefos, which are the major um, within the UFMC universe, they're my major alien. They are definitely patterned after uh, the whole the avian dinosaur type biology, um, and that was specifically I did that. However, there's I have the the cappies which are in that universe, which I'm I get kind of tired of all the aliens being super duper uh, fighters that can kill every human, and the humans have to really fight back and. Uh, you know, the War of the Worlds type aliens that you have to find a trick in order to beat them. And the Cappies were initially pretty threatening because humans didn't even know what they were, but they were found out that they really weren't that capable and they were actually running from the Clethos. So I wanted something different. I, I, I don't like tropes with aliens. 
um, with my fire ant, which is my the Navy fighter, uh, the crystals, we're in book two, and humans don't even really understand them yet. They're not carbon-based uh, life form. Uh, they're, they're bad guys. I mean, they're the enemy, and they're fighting, and they have their own kind of little spaceships. But as of the second book, humans don't even, still don't even understand them, which I think is more likely than uh, anything else. The one problem with aliens, though, is uh, in my Grub Wars, basically the aliens are something as far from far from natural on, on, on Earth right now that I could get it from. They're basically big giant maggots hmm. that have power like an electric eel or something like that. That was fine. But when I wrote a book with Lauren, when I wrote three novellas with Lawrence Schoen, the aliens are plant-based. A lot of the people who reviewed it did not like that. How can aliens be plants? You know, Little Shop of Horrors notwithstanding, um, that kind of surprised me. Uh, a big giant maggot, is fine, <laughs> but a plant-based alien is unbelievable. That just doesn't <laughs> Wow. It's a bridge too far, sir. A bridge too far. Bridge too far. Wow. I never would have considered that as being a problem. That's funny. I didn't consider it either. <laughs> I mean, they have a whole a whole video game, Plants vs. Zombies, so. Yeah, super popular. There you go. Finicky. Finicky people. Sure. <laughs> All right. So before we transition to the reviews, uh, I've seen you mention in other interviews that you use sand tables when creating your battle scenes. So have you made your own 3D figurines from the United Federation Marine Corps universe, or do you just use what's handy? Uh, I wish I could be like Michael Anderley and fly to uh, China to get figurines <laughs> made. Mm. Uh, but no, I, I, I'm using the sand tables to create the terrain and so that I could, I'm using a, a shriveled up pomegranate from one of my trees or something like that to just place things. So I'm getting the ideas of timelines, uh, artillery range, uh, uh, movement, uh, what you can see and what you can't see. Uh, in my first military fiction, I had Marines from Quantico reacting to New Delhi and I had to sit there and time out the Air Force airplanes, how fast they would fly, where they have to, stop for uh, uh, fuel and everything in order to make it realistic. So basically I'm using the sand table. So I have a better vision in my mind of what's happening. So I don't make a big mistake. So some reviewer is going to read and said, well, wait a minute, you know, they were over here. And then, then 15 minutes later, they were 150 clicks away. I, I, that would kill me. Oh, what a good, yeah, that's a good idea. All Hmm. right. I I do that as well because it helps me visualize it. So I understand yeah, I actually went to the store and bought some of those little green army men. Went to the Dollar Tree, <laughs> and then and then I feel like a jerk because I'm telling my kid, "No, those are daddy's toys. Don't play with those ones. Play with those <laughs> ones because you know they they <laughs> like honest, honey. It's work. I'm not playing. It's work. Yeah. So, I don't think I have her convinced on the concept of sand tables yet. I think she's like, ah, oh, you're just uh, it's what is it? You're procrastinating with your dolls again. again. <laughs> no, they're. You hush. They're not dolls. They're action <laughs> figures. <laughs> you got to remember that I live in, uh, in in Las Vegas, so my backyard is basically a sand. <laughs> this is this is oh, very that's true. That's right. So I just use the uh, the dining room table, and it you know sits there for days. And she gets mad. Finally, she's had enough. She's like, "You need to write however many words you need to write because I want my table back." 
Like I've had cups <laughs> as like mo- uh, as mountains and sponges as uh as like you know the various woods because you know they got the green part at the top. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. well, I did use a uh, I. I have, I have cholo cholo cactus, which I don't oh, know, if, yeah. you know if you know what that is. It's a okay, and a lot of people plant them to keep people out uh-huh. of the yard. Well, sometimes pieces break off, so I, I usually use those for the bad guys. <laughs> oh heck yeah! Isn't that so the I'm one gonna, they call a jumping cactus? Oh, those yeah. things are so bad; they go right through boots and everything. Oh yeah, big old gloves that go mm-hmm. right through. All right, them. so I will put a show note for that. So if anyone doesn't know, like me, who's never seen them, we can we can look them up together, dear listener. So oh. All right. So before we move on real quick, uh, which one of you wants to educate the listener who might not know what a quick sand table is? I can, I guess. A, a sand table is, is it, can, it can be just uh, scratches in the dirt when you're getting ready to do an assault in 10 minutes. Uh, but the sand tables I'm talking about are when you set up basically the terrain of where an operation is going to be. And you use the sand to make little, you know, mountains and, and valleys and plains and stuff like that. And then on this, you actually move representations of your units around so that and, – and you may have seen pictures of this online. If you look up sand table on Google, I'm sure they will have pictures like out in Iraq with, with all these officers and staff or, or even down at the company level with all the Marines or soldiers. And they're standing around it while – the uh, operations officer or the commander or somebody is pointing out, okay, this is what we're going to do then. And this is what's going to happen here. And because you can see it, you can see, oh, wait a minute, there's a mountain here or there's a, a river here. It helps everybody understand into much greater detail exactly what's expected of them. And the fog right. of war is real. When you get, when the first round is fired, you tend to forget a lot of what it was said or what was planned. And so you want to embed this into everybody's mind as deeply as you can. And the sand table is probably about the best way for people to understand exactly what's going to happen or what is planned to happen. All right. And I found a uh, quick video for you that I'll link in the show notes of how to build a military sand table that, uh, one of the gaming websites put out there. So, but yeah, I just thought we could explain that real quick. Cause I've said that and I realized I don't think we've ever told them what that was in case they didn't know, but it, it does allow you to visualize things in sort of three dimension. Yep. And I, I think anybody who plays uh, Warhammer 40 K that's kind of a really sophisticated sand, sand table. Cause they go into r- great detail on that. That's true. Tabletop gaming, basically. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's move on. I think we beat that horse to death, but you just threw a whole bunch of Warhammer show notes at me. You know what you did. You did that on purpose. Voltron. Jerk. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. So the next question, let me get down there. So I skimmed the reviews as I always do. This helps the right readers find the right books. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. The first book in this universe has 203 reviews with a four-star average rating. And when I read through the negative reviews, uh, which can be equally helpful in finding proper selection, I saw one trend. Uh, one trend in the reviews is that fans were angry with you for transitioning away from your modern day slash near future stuff uh, and into the military science fiction. So did that su- reaction surprise you? Um, not really. Uh, I kind of I was a little hesitant to move into from what is a successful genre for me into science fiction, but I really wanted science fiction. So I was willing to do that. 
the people I, I had people who I, I, I have had one star reviews on, on some of my first books that uh, people said, wait a minute, this is fiction. I don't read fiction. They bought it to read about Marines in combat that they know. And oh. I it was fiction. And so most of my readers from my military fiction, they want to read real stuff. And, and a couple of years, you know, if I, if I did the attacking the Somali pirates or the, uh, the Chinese taking over the, the Spratleys, that's near enough into the future. And people are using the same equipment. Everything is basically the same. And that's what they like. When you take the step into science fiction, you're going to lose a lot of these readers. And I understood that. And if I look at my mailing list, uh, the vast majority of them are there for the science fiction. Uh, I do get some of the other thing when you're going to go back to military fiction. Um, on the other hand, there can be a, a little bit of a bleed over uh, my werewolf of Marines, which I love. Uh, I had people from who both wrote the, who both read my military fiction and who read my military SF say, Oh, what the heck? I re- I've read Jonathan. Let me give it a shot. And then they found out they really liked it. So you do get the bleed over uh, of some people who will follow you from one genre to the other, particularly with that military trend. But no, to lot, that, that was a long way to answer your direct question. I wasn't really that surprised. Okay. So the other negative reviews, and there weren't that many, only said things like, not my thing. So I will move on because that, uh, that doesn't really give you anything useful. So an analysis of the positive reviews had a theme as well. They all mentioned that the story was fun and a quick read. Uh, many even saying that they read it in one sitting and were saying not nice things about how they were late to work the next day. So uh, how, do you go about keeping <laughs> that, how do you go about keeping that pace alive as you continue writing in, in this universe or you know replicating it in others? I actually – take a lot of effort on timing and pace. Um, if I have a big, long, you know, sometimes you have a big, long battle scene. It's just going to take a lot. And I try to figure out ways to break it without breaking the, uh, the, the, without taking the reader out of it. Uh, but normally I, I really consider what I have a high and a low and a high and a low to let the reader uh, catch their breath. Uh, but then I don't have, I don't let the lows go too long. I just need them to catch their breath so I can lead them into the next one so they're re-energized for the next intent portion of the book. Um, so that's something I really work on. Very, I work on diligently, and I'm very pleased when I read something like that because then I know I succeeded in what I was trying to do. Um, but, yeah, I kind of try to keep – well, integration was not so much fun as – that was a deeper book, but Fire Ant that is just a fun book as far as I'm concerned. I actually wrote it because I was dealing with a publisher who was just delaying, delaying, delaying. And I was so frustrated. I needed to write something fun. And I, I, I'm very familiar with Filipino overseas workers. And so I just said, you know something, I'm going to make a, a four foot, six, 70 pound Filipina as the heroine, as the protagonist of this novel. And she's going to become a, fighter pilot and the best damn fighter pilot there is. And it is a much more no deep meaning. This is just a fun book and it's been received very well. Nice. Fun has its place, escapism and all that. So, um, 
uh, continue with the analysis of the reviews. This is the last one on this in this vein. But I saw another common theme in reviews, and they all uh, regarding characterization. So all of your fans seem to think you nailed it when blending your action-oriented writing style uh, without forgetting to make your characters real people. No cardboard cutouts in your books, no sir. So what trick do you use, and how do you manage to keep that while you write the next books? Like, how do you manage that? Do you think? Well, the best the best action in the world means nothing to me if you don't have characters that you care about. And care about, I mean, you could love them or you could hate them. Either way is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I live my characters. I really, I get into their backstories, stuff that uh, that I don't necessarily write in the book, but I know what mo- I try to know what motivates them. I try to make them different from each other. I try to have the interplay between them, uh, and I want to show their personalities. I don't, and I don't want to just say he's a great guy. You know, I, I we get these little trite phrases: show, don't tell. Well, sometimes you do have to tell, but this is one of the cases where I like to show uh, if he's a great guy or she's a, uh, a great woman, do stuff with them to indicate that. If, uh, if someone is a hard ass, don't say they're a hard ass. Make <laughs> them do things that let the reader say, well, she's a hard ass. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really, I, I really consider all my characters, even the minor characters, who they are, where they're coming from, what motivates them, and then I attempt to show that through their actions and and their uh, and and their progression. I also, with my main characters, always, always, always have a character arc. Now that character arc may go over the series. Uh, Rick Lysander as a recruit was a lot different from Rick Lysander's as the commandant who's leading the revolution. Um, so I, I believe in character arcs. The bad part about it is when, as a, as a on a business side, for example, is when I wrote Werewolf of Marines, you've got a really dirtbag Marine who joined for all the wrong reasons and is a, you know, he tries to get out of all the work and refuses to walk to walk point. He gets bit by an Iraqi Marine. Well, over the course of becoming a werewolf over three books, he, he does develop quite well. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, but I had a couple people, I had, I had one reviewer say, I just hope the werewolf killed him and I quit because he was such a dirtbag. Oh, wow. So I wanted to say, I, I, I read every review. I'm not one of these people who says you shouldn't read reviews. I don't respond back um, unless someone asks a specific question. I'm not doing it for that reason, but I want to see what people think of what I'm writing where I might have missed the boat, where, where they like and stuff like that. And I wanted just to write, so just, just please, just, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll refund you the book. Just read a few more chapters. So mm-hmm. is that, are the, all of them in audio? Cause I know Chris really liked the idea of the Semper Lycanus and the werewolf stuff. So do you have those, um, all of your series in audible or. Almost, almost all of them are. Or they're on their way. I, I have turned over all my auto book, audio books to Podium. They've uh, signed a contract with them. They get first right of refusal. Um, but they take a lot longer to get stuff out. So the first of the, I think Grub Wars just came out. Um, uh, Fire, the, the first two of the Fire Ant series, the Navy of the, of the Humankind, that is done. I just saw the artwork. Um, integration is out. But I think all the UFMC... I think every one of them is out. Oh, I want to get a second can. job to afford all these books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Werewolf of Marines, those are out. 
Uh, my military fiction is out. I, I would say a good portion of them are out. Yes, in audio. In audio. Outstanding. So, Chris, now we know what you're going to be doing. Yeah, that's right. He, he, was, practic- <laughs> he was practically drooling over those in the uh, pre-show there, dear listener. That's why I asked. But moving on. <laughs> I, love the I love the werewolf of marine books. Well, it's fun to write. Love it. All right. So are you going to get like vampires of the Navy now and have them sparkle? <laughs> oh, my yes. gosh. Yes. I'll have sparkle. No, no, Air Force. I'll have sparkly Air yeah. Force, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, so the, the, the one I'm going to say this, I, I just love this because all all the tropes and everything, when, when my protagonist finds out that he's a werewolf because uh, a Kurdish Peshmerga realize what he is is trying to help him he's a werewolf and he and he goes well where are the vampires and the and the uh peshmerga is like what are you crazy there's no such thing as vampires (laughs) (laughs) because of all the vampire werewolf teen werewolf stuff Hmm. twilight i guess (laughs) well now that you've got your book in in words and you've got it in audio do you foresee anything else coming out such as video games movies rpgs or if i'm actually doing a game uh for uh oh i've agreed to do the game i haven't started it uh it's going to be based it's going to be squad tactics based in my ufmc uh universe it's from choice of games uh i i signed the uh i i told him i'm in i'm in and i'll be doing that in the next I'm doing something with Michael Anderley right now. I've got uh, book three of the Ghost Marines and book three of the Navy of Humankind done to do, and then I'll be hitting the the game. Okay. Now is that going to be is that going to be tabletop gaming like with the little figurines, or are we just an RPG or what? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, RPG. Okay. That, cool. that was going to be my next yeah. question. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. Hey, uh, is there going to be anything uh, or is there anything else about the United Federation Marine Corps series or recruit in particular that we didn't ask that, that you want to tell us about? Not really. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's interested enough people to take a look. Uh, now, there I could see a big difference between recruit and, let's say, integration, because recruit I probably wrote when I had only written 500,000 words. Uh integration i wrote after i'd written three million words okay so the quality might so be a little become, different i'm a better integration is definitely written better okay i actually did I, I did release the first story that i've ever written not the first published story which was secession but i wrote uh for fun i wrote a short story uh back when i was 17 years old and a mid and a midship uh first year midshipman at the naval academy and people asked me to write, to publish my very first work. I was very hesitant. <laughs> when I, I really wanted to get out the red pen and start editing it. But it took a effort. It took discipline that I learned in the Marine Corps to just say, nope, this is what they want to see. I'm going to put it up. All right. Here's, here's another question. Do you, do you keep your old stuff, the stuff that you do get the red pen out or – are you like me? You shred it and forget it ever happened. No, I keep it. Are you going to eBay that stuff someday? <laughs> if I'm ever a big enough name and someone actually wants it, sure. <laughs> that was my idea. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, since you've written in, uh, your novel in the Galactic Empire subgenre of science fiction, so what is your biggest pet peeve when you read about other empires? And remember, speaking generally, since we don't want to call anyone out, karma is a thing and all. Yeah, that, my, my, my uh, I was going to say something funny. It just lost it, so forget that. <laughs> <laughs> it happens okay. to all of us. Uh, a lack of realism. I hate it. God weapons that just fire forever. Uh, na- uh, uh, ships, spaceships that dogfight, you know, a hundred meters from each other, like 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 knights with lances dueling. Hmm. Um, if you look at the last Star Wars with the World War II bombing run, uh, that killed me. We need to have a suspension of disbelief in SF, but there have to be rules that you set. And humans have to act in ways that are logical. Maybe not the way you would act. Um, bad guys, good guys, uh, cowards, brave people, they're all going to react differently. But it has to be logically. Um, it, it, it just – the lack of realism bugs me the most. And that's where I, li- I tend to like more military SF because there tends to be a little bit of more realism hmm. uh, than, let's say, space opera. Now, I could enjoy space opera, and I could enjoy more comic booky things. Um, Hard Luck Hank by Stephen Campbell is definitely not serious, but it's a fun read. Um, I, could, I could deal with that. But when a book is purportedly trying to be more serious, but it's not realistic, that pulls me right out of the book. Uh, something over the top and, and that's not intended to be serious, hey, whatever goes, goes. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Chris likes the over-the-top and um, irreverent stuff. <laughs> yeah, I do. And I, I, I like that's what it's supposed to be. I mean, I, I like – for movies, you know, I, I like watching the, the Ant-Man and stuff. Realistic? No way. But that's okay. But if I'm, if, if I'm reading a military science fiction, for example, or a, a – a, a modern thriller or something like that. It needs to be realistic. Okay. So that makes sense. You don't want it to be too campy. I get it. So uh, following that, what about empires done right? Which author or series has done um, the best massive governmental scope in their science fiction? So obviously you give yourself top billing. So who would be your second pick? You know, I, I think there's, there's two, one series and one grouping of books. I won't call it a series. Um, I think David Weber, with honor, with his Honorverse, hmm. has created a pretty good, uh, massive government. How it works within his universe. Now he has help in the fact that he's got a gazillion dedicated Honorversians that keep him on track. Um, but I think he's done a really good job with that. And on a more, um, if I uh, on a on a different tack, I think Mike Resnick has created uh some superb universes in all his uh uh, his especially his earlier works um you know santiago and 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 ivory and things like that um those are two people that i say have created good overall universes as far as government and how things work and the relationship between uh people and different governments and different planets and stuff like that okay So you also set this story in the space marine subgenre. 
of military sites and fiction. So what's your biggest pet peeve without naming any specific names of other authors who write military science fiction and not them, but their stories? Well, once again, you know, it's the concept of realism. I believe space Marines as a subgenre has to be based on, uh, on realism. Um, you know, this isn't the Marvel universe where people are flying around and, you know, hulking out and whatever. And that's, I love that too. But in space Marines, I believe it has to be talking about military people acting in a, in a, it's a future military. So you have weapons and aliens or wherever else, but it's still got to be based on reality. Um, you know, I was talking about the book that came out, privates don't boss around majors, Mm -hmm. um, uh, weapons. They run out of ammo. Uh, Oh, here's one of mine. I was reading a military sci-fi where the guy, the, the, uh, lieutenant or whatever he was, was going to jump into a small kind of a escape. He was going to like an escape hover, uh, craft, pod, uh, an escape pod, and use that to go somewhere to fight somebody. But because he had a weight limitation, he didn't take his handgun, but he took a sword. Yeah. <laughs> sword um. sorcery are great. There is very little reason for having swords in most Marine combat. Now, I I have to caveat that. In my book, Gladiator, they do use swords, but that's because they have decided by almost by treaty or agreement to have stylized combat by by champions. Um, So I did move that. But in, in generally speaking, you know, we don't go into battle now with, slingshots like David killing Goliath. <laughs> so I've only seen one book that did that convincingly with the, the sword in, in a combat scenario. And it was the anthology reviewed uh, the AK Meek anthology. I don't remember who wrote that specific story, but the, basically the robot, cause they were using blasters, his sword sort of channeled that, that energy back into his power banks. Cause it was a robot. Um, so that, oh, okay. that made sense. Okay. No, no, I can't. I could buy something like that. Here's one of my one of my biggest peeves, though, is how females are treated. Um, females, no matter how kick-ass, are tend to you know. I've seen them where they're basically, at least on the cover, you know, they're going into battle with a low-cut top and a g-string, where the guy right next to them is in a combat suit, you know, full <laughs> armor. Yeah. You know, I don't think females are are handled very realistically, in my opinion, and that's one of the, I think. That's one of the reasons I don't want my let my own hubris or ego come out here. I think that's why I have a lot of female fans, uh, women who have served in the military, write me all the time. Um, they like it. Uh, they like the books. They say, you know, finally somebody is writing what it's like to be a woman in the military. And I take great, great pride in that. Uh, that's one of my most, more than most things, I take pride in, in my women that I have, that I write about. Okay. Wow. That's, that's good stuff. Huh? Okay. Well, following that, who do you think does space Marines, write? Who's your favorite? Of course, besides yourself. Besides myself. (laughs) Um, you know, I've, I've always liked John Ringo. And part of that's because I like John Ringo. Uh, he is a hilarious personable guy, but I've always liked, uh, his, his work. I thought his March to the sea that he did with David Weber. Um, he did the, most of the writing. Weber did the um, touching up. Uh, I thought that got the feel okay. 
Um, I think Richard Fox does a good job in getting the feel of being in the military. Um, and I think that's more important than your weapons, um, more important than the aliens, more important than the situation is whether you can read that and, and, and feel that it ad- that it adequately uh, presented what it's like to be in the military. Okay. Well, speaking of military science fiction, oh, I'm sorry. Um, as an author who writes military science fiction, do you prefer writing large space battles or the the up close and personal small unit type of battles or something in between? No question, small units, Marines or soldiers fighting. It's a lot easier to describe the action to me. It's more exciting. There's more in in, in a space in a navy battle you're either alive or you're dead basically you know your ship got blown up and you're dead Mm. in one instant um in in with marines you can get wounded you could be cut off from your uh from your unit uh it just makes it much more interesting which is why it's also harder to write about a colonel and keep it exciting and on the end because the colonels aren't generally out there where they're going to get separated from their their squad right things like that um, and, and the other aspect about the Navy is if you look at it realistically, once again, you don't have two ships charging each other and passing with a hundred meters from each other, two kilometer long ships doing this, um, things take time to happen. So you fire a torpedo and then you wait and see if it ever is going to hit or you fire, if you're firing a, a energy weapon, most of them fire it at close to the speed of light. If you look at the physics of it, um, so you're firing and you may you don't even know because of your sensors what's happening until your your beam actually takes a, how long to get you know 100,000 clicks or a million clicks or whatever. Um so I'm not saying I don't like the space battles. I I do. Um it's just I believe it's harder to make it interesting and more um uh, more in your face exciting. Yeah, they're they're not they're not so immediate or, or visceral. Yeah, and it's it's kind of impersonal yeah. because yeah, you, you shoot a a photon torpedo, you know, for a million clicks away, and they you, you're you pretty wait. sure they've shot one, and yeah, everybody sits around and see who dies first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's very realistic, and you can and a good writer can make that exciting as the stress builds up or whatever, but it's just so much easier to write about <laughs> marines fighting on the ground. All right. Well, uh, your bio says that you uh, retired from the Marine Corps. Um, we ask authors who are also military veterans this question, uh, but how do you feel like your time in the Corps affected the the stories that you tell? Absolutely. Uh, it molds everything that I write. Uh, I've written a few books that really had nothing to do with the Marine Corps, but even then, or military, but even then I could see the influence. Um I write what I'm writing because I served 34 years in the military. Wow. That's a long time. Well, four years Navy. So we, I guess we could count that as military. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't the Coast Guard. <laughs> oh, shots fired. <laughs> he was actually um, not tall enough to join the Coast Guard. You've got to be tall enough. You can walk to shore. <laughs> hey, well, uh, wow. Okay. I've actually uh, seen Mike, some, uh, Mike, some Mike Cole. If anybody's ever read Mike Cole, Mike with a M Y K E, and he was Coast Guard. I've actually seen some of the funniest um, 
Jody jokes coming back. And the Jody's the uh, the stereotypical um, person that takes your woman while you're deployed. And so when when someone makes a Coast Guard joke, she'll see people post a picture of this couple wrapped in the um, the Coast Guard flag saying, uh, "Coasties keeping your women warm since and then whatever year they were founded." <laughs> so so they've got a sense of humor oh. about it. The, uh, well, the Coasties I, do. <laughs> I have uh, I have quite a few. Uh, I won't say quite a few. I have several. Uh, Coasties that write me because in one of my books in the uh, Lysander Twins uh, I gave credit to the one Coast Guard uh, Coastie that won a Medal of Honor taking Marines ashore on uh, not Tinian uh, yeah I think it was Tinian and uh, and I actually have a Space Guard and, and so one of the one of the uh, characters is a chief in the Space Guard and he helped save the day. But anyway, because of that, yeah. I have a lot of people. Uh, have three or four coasties that always write me saying they're so happy to see the Coast Guard in space military in military SF. Note to self: All right, we'll have to do some yeah. of that. <laughs> All right, so uh, enough about your books, Jonathan. Shameless plugging is over. So, what are you reading in the genre of science fiction now? Well, on military science fiction, I just read a short story. That I'm going to give a plug called "Mustering Out." by Deborah Davitt, who I never met. Um, but she does, and she's never served them. I, I, I contacted her afterwards. She's never served in the military, but her father did. And she's talking about how, you know, we a lot of times in the military we have enhanced soldiers. That's a common trope. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do with them when they're done? And it was a pretty good, uh, I, I was really moved by that short story. Uh, if someone comes, uh, I think you can read it online. I think it's posted online in one of the magazines. Um, I would suggest anybody pick that up just as a it, – it's not slam-bam action shooting, but I, I think it's a good, I think it's a good book. Um, I, I just read Advanced Copy of the War Beneath by Timothy Johnson. Um, he's been right, – he, he's got three books that are very interesting in the, in the solar system about a detective, a detective who tracks down murderers. Um, this is something different. It's all underwater. It look it's pretty interesting so far. Um, recently, okay, here, okay, we're talking about books that have to be. I like realism. I just read a robot named Clunk by Simon Hayes. Uh, it is not realistic in the least bit, but I laugh a lot. I mean, it's hard to do humor, in my opinion. Um, I can't really do it well. Uh, it's it's a pretty good book. Um, and then when, I mean, in science fiction, I think, oh, I finally read Chris, uh, Chris Nuttall's um, uh, The Empire's Core. Um, you know, he does a lot of fantasy, too, but this is more in the uh, military sci-fi range. Um, but that, that's what I've read lately, I guess. All right. What about – have you read any of that, Chris? No, none of it. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that mustering out. That sounds interesting. Um, what about you, Chris? Are you reading anything exciting? Yeah, I, it's not sci-fi. Well, not exactly. It's um, geez, I just picked it up. Let me use uh, this fallen world by Christopher Woods. Just started it. I like Chris Woods. Is it Chris and or Christopher for a publishing name? Christopher. Okay, I have to check that out. I, I do read fantasy too, but that's interesting. So I've just uh, finished the Message for the Dead, which is the eighth book in the Galaxy's Edge, um, and I'm, I'm anxious to start the ninth one to see what happens. But I. I because I write book reviews of what I read, like I can't make let myself start it until I write the book eight's review, which I've, I'm working on now. Because otherwise, you, you mix stuff up. 
Like I could read something else. Yeah. So I've been I've been reading the uh, Luck is Not a Factor, the other sh- stories in that short story in the Four Horsemen universe. So I've been reading that so I don't mix things up. But but yeah, let me add that to the show notes. Uh, for mustering out, uh, let me just spell uh, Deborah's name. It's uh, Davitt, D-A-V-I-T-T. All right, and I'll find a link and put it in the show notes, dear listener. All right. So we have um, – uh, we, we like to remember the science that makes science fiction fun. It's part of that realism that uh, Jonathan's been talking about. So, Jonathan, are there any breakthroughs that you're excited by or you're following? Uh, I've been, I'm really interested in how technology affects uh, human beings. Um, I mean, I'm obviously following the new advances in, in military science, um, load-bearing equipment and things like that. But I like, I'm looking at genetic research. Uh, this recent thing in China. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, it's both a little shocking because uh, it looks like this was just done willy-nilly. But this whole area of, of how of which, which direction we're going and what it's capable uh, it just fascinates me. And I try to keep up on all that. And I put it in – normally I put it in as a warning. Uh, uh, there, there's a virus that makes mice uh, fearless and then cats eat them. And then the, the virus – or actually it's not a virus. It's a protozoa – then breeds in the cat's gut. And then comes out in the feces, and then the mice catch it for the cycle. That whole thing is just—I don't understand oh, how wow. that could happen. And so that brought up a whole line of trying to create super soldiers that didn't fear anything. And of course, it was a big failure because if you don't fear, you don't duck when people shoot shoot at you. <laughs> yeah. In my book. So I mean, I'm constantly looking at this this whole area of science, uh, both for just because I'm curious. And then how I might be able to uh, either use that or take take that further in progression and how I can use whatever that may be in my books. All right. What about you, Chris? What are you following or excited by? Well, we have our own swag store for the, uh, for the podcast, but it turns out so does NASA. Uh, they're coming out with some – basically some pins that look like they're old rockets. So the uh, – the title is uh, NASA's Space Race Rockets Relaunches Collectible Retro 51 Pens. Of course, you know, you, why read the uh, the article when the title gives it away? <coughs> Space.com, fix it. <laughs> but, uh, but from the article, um, it says, uh, They became iconic by powering some of NASA's most historic missions. And now the rockets that lofted the first astronauts into space and boosted humans to the moon can help launch your next letter, school assignment, or office memo. They're expensive, so I'm not sure I would use it for that. I'd probably just stick it in a glass case somewhere and and not touch it. But Retro 51, the maker of the uh, Tornado line of collectible rollerball pens, has announced its Space Race series, a trio of writing instruments that are styled after NASA's early astronaut vehicles. The pens, issued in partnership with the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, are in celebration of next year's 50th anniversary of the moon landing, which uh, we, we know one of the guys who helped fake that. So that was cool. <laughs> at least he says he helped fix it but but that they were so the actors were so serious about getting it right they demanded it be filmed on location so there's that all right so he's referencing terry mixon's uh sci-fi shenanigans interview 
<laughs> and I'll link that in the show notes because he's a lot of fun anyway. But um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, when it comes to aggregate sites, like you have like a Breitbart News or I'm trying to think of some of the other sites out there. I don't really follow them anymore. Um any of the aggregators, but, uh, but the websites that used to aggregate like news sites, space.com essentially does that with technology news. Um, and so I really, you know, I find that useful. We go there. If you've noticed a lot for our articles, because they, they take the, these serious research papers and they make it idiot proof, but yeah, uh, they fruit. do, <laughs> it's low hanging fruit, but they really do need to work on the names of the articles. <laughs> But anyway, so the one I'm uh, title of following that I saw was the t- name of the article on space.com is phoning a ET, a contest asks students to craft messages to aliens. So I think the title says it all uh, as with the other article, but let me give a brief snippet from the article. So from the article, more than four decades after humanity's first real attempt to reach the out to intelligent aliens, a new generation will craft an interstellar missive of its own. The credential, uh, Air Cibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, probably butchered the pronunciation, is asking young people around the world to devise an updated version of the famous Arcebo message, uh, which is a message astronomers led by, um, which a team of astronomers, excuse me, led by Frank Drake, beamed toward the distant cluster M13 on November 16th, 1974. The competition is open to kindergarten students through university undergraduates, each team of which will be led by a mentor, a professor or scientist, for example. The winning group will come to the uh, Cribo Observatory, AO, uh, next November and help celebrate the original 45th message contest, uh, the representative said. So my thoughts are basically it's a fun way to get kids interested in space to create the next generation of astronauts and explorers. I shudder to think what the final message might be if the kindergartners win, uh, but it couldn't be worse than what our politicians might come up with. So if you're interested in the article and finding out more, their link will be in the show notes. And uh, as an aside, I'm working on that project with my kids. I, I, you know, We're not going to submit it, just some sort of fun family activity. But I, I figure my youngest one will offer to design their Iron Man armor for them. And my oldest will probably <laughs> want to talk to them about like anime and manga or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I'm not. I'm not really worried about if the signal actually gets there and the aliens discover we're here. I think they already know, but I think as they drive by Earth, they lock their doors. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Possible. In fact, it's probably probable. So. Um, definitely, maybe. All right, Jonathan. <laughs> as we bring this show to a close, uh, how can listeners find you? Uh, well, if you're not in Las Vegas, or I'll be in Bali in uh, January. Uh, you can find me at jonathanbrazy.com uh, as my web, that's my own website, or you can find me on Facebook as well. Outstanding. And as usual, dear listener, those notes will be in the show notes. And what about us, Chris? How can listeners find us? Our website is www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter handle is at SFS, that's Sierra, Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash SF shenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, 
in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.